turn in your Bibles, please, to 1 Samuel chapter 12. 1 Samuel chapter 12. After we read our sermon text, uh, like we do every week, we're going to pray. And I'm going to be praying for a number of things, one of which is our search team, uh, the uh, Associate Pastor of Youth and Children search team. If you're uh, our guest today, uh, you probably don't know uh, that we are lacking a staff member here at Indian Creek, and so we're beginning the process of, of searching for the, the man that God has for us, and uh, our search team is going to get started here pretty soon, and uh, I want to tell you who is on our search team uh, so that you can be praying for them as well, uh, and so I'll just tell you right now, uh, the team is going to be led by Scott Royal, uh, and then along with Scott, Kevin Brown, Candace Gowen, Dana Gwynn, Leah Newman, and Kim Richards, and of course, I'll be involved uh, with the team as well. Uh, So as you think of it throughout your week over the next several months, um, please uh, be praying for our search team. It's a lot of work. It's it's a very emotional task that they have. They get emotionally connected to the candidates that they uh, interview and, of course, have a chance to really build them up uh, spiritually along with their families. And, of course, it's a difficult Um, task as far as our our church is concerned but they're going to be serving us and so we need to serve them by praying for them and I would just ask you to join me in doing that Uh, let's go ahead and read our text uh, though before we pray Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 12 verse 1 and Samuel said to all Israel behold I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me and have made a king over you And now behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. They said, you've not, take, you've not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, the Lord is witness against you and his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. And Samuel said to the people, the Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we've forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. 
And the Lord sent Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you, or uh, Jeroboam and Barak and, and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side and you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us. When the Lord your God was your king. And now behold the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over, both, uh, over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now therefore stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we, we stand in awe of you. We fear you. You are worthy of our respect, our reverence, and our awe. You are the creator of the ends of the earth. You are the redeemer of a great people. You've kept every single one of the promises that you've made. You have shown yourself to be a God who can take even the bad things that happen in the world and use them to a good purpose. You, you even take our sin, our stubbornness, and you use that in a way that glorifies your name and builds up your people. Your grace is amazing. Your wisdom is unsearchable. Your ways are high, far above our own. And Lord, we, we praise you. We give you all the honor and the glory. And we repent for the times this week when we, we've tried to take some of that glory for ourselves or give it to another. Lord, we need you. We desperately need you. We need your wisdom, Lord, as this search process begins and uh, the search team uh, starts to uh, walk through the different steps that need to be taken in order to uh, help our church find a new associate pastor of youth and children. Lord, I pray that you would build these brothers and sisters up in their faith and their relationship with you. I pray that you would knit their hearts together with one another. I pray that you would use them to build up any candidates that they end up interviewing. And Lord, I pray that you would provide our church 
with a man who is, well, who, that we don't deserve. Uh, Lord, please bless your church here with a leader who is an example of godliness, who loves you, who loves his family, and who will love the next generation here in Mineral Wells. Lord, I pray uh, as well for those of us who are uh, of our uh, uh, flock who are ministering today uh, in the nursery and children's church, uh, on the safety team as they serve. Uh, Lord, we pray for Pastor Guy as he ministers in Spain. I pray that you keep him safe and make him effective. Uh, Father, we also ask for your mercy and your hand of protection on our neighbors in Eastland County. Uh, Lord, this is a... Uh, the fires that have taken place over there are um, they're just beyond our ability to even uh, process but Lord we know that they did not surprise you and so Lord I pray that you would just stop them and that you would send rain and calm uh, uh, a lack of wind and that you would uh, just cause all of those fires to go out and Lord, I pray that you would provide for those who are homeless now and uh, that you would raise up many believers from this church and others like ours to serve uh, our neighbors who are going through this time of suffering. Father, we pray as well that you would open up your word to us and help us to know you better and to serve you more faithfully and with greater joy. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I study my Bible, it's instructive to me how often I find myself comparing my relationship with God to the various relationships that I have with other human beings in the world. Have you found yourself doing that as well? Uh, we do this almost automatically without realizing we're doing it, without appreciating how these comparisons don't just illuminate our understanding of what the Bible teaches, they actually shape our understanding of who God is and what he is like and how he relates to us. In today's text, the God of Israel, working through his human representative Samuel, is going to deal with his people Israel in connection with a grave sin that they have committed against him. Months earlier, they have rejected God as their king and asked for a king like the nations. You probably remember that uh, if you've been with us the last several weeks. That's not something God is just going to ignore. That's not something he's just going to let go. He needs to deal with them directly with regard to this sin. And as I tried to wrap my mind around what's taking place in this chapter, it struck me that we could compare this event in Israel's history with the kind of ways that, that different people deal with us in our own experiences and our own relationships in a variety of ways. So consider, I, I, I think about, for example, my relationship with my boss at work. Uh, in the last job that I worked at, I worked for a company that a lot of folks in our city wanted to work for. Uh, the pay was decent, the benefits were very good. Uh, the opportunities for advancement were almost unlimited, and of course, the expectations were very, very high. If an employee was not meeting those expectations, he or she would be confronted. Uh, thankfully, I, I never had to walk through this process. Uh, it's a process that you maybe are familiar with. We called it coaching. Uh, never had to go through any coaching, thankfully. But I did have to help coach a few of my coworkers and given the cost associated with terminating an employee, you don't want to do that because it costs a lot of money, 
uh, to try to train their replacement. So you try to coach this individual and help them get to the point where they're productive again. We did coach. We tried to help that person improve. Uh, But in some instances, that coaching process didn't work right away for a variety of reasons. And so if you went through coaching and you weren't quite getting the picture, then what would happen is you would end up going on a, what we would call a PIP. PIP stands for Performance Improvement Plan. And a PIP is not something you want to be on. Because if if you're on a PIP, uh, that means that you were given a set of written expectations, and if you didn't meet those expectations by a due date, then your employment was terminated and you were let go. So in other words, the, the purpose of this performance improvement plan was sort of this last resort, alerting the employee that his relationship with the company was in danger of, of coming to an end. Okay, some of you have that dynamic at work. You understand what that's like. You know what I'm talking about. But compare that coaching process with the way that God deals with his people. I I truly believe that some of you feel that God's way of dealing with you is the same way that your boss or your supervisor might deal with you at work. Uh, He's patient. He wants us to succeed. He wants us to obey. He wants us to be profitable members of the organization, but if his efforts to coach us do not meet with success, then God takes it to the next level. That's what we think sometimes. And so you come to a passage like this one, and here's God putting Israel on a performance improvement plan, letting them know that if if they don't shape up, he's going to let the hammer drop. And, And the point is to let them know that their relationship with him is on very shaky ground. Some of you think this is how God relates to you. Like you get to a certain point where he's like, I'm, I've reached the end of my rope and I'm putting you on notice and I might just let you go if you don't turn things around. But is this how God relates to us when we sin, when we rebel, when we fail, when we're disbelieving or disobedient? Does God put us on notice so that, he, so that we might lose what we have? I, I don't think he does. In fact, let me explain what I mean by drawing another comparison to a different relationship I've had. I, I think back to moments when as a young man I was rebellious or disobedient or dishonest or sneaky toward my parents. Went behind their back. And, and there was definitely a reckoning when those things came to light. Like it was not going to be let go. In fact, it was a lot more intense than the cold uh, unfeeling coaching process at work. Uh, things were said that were angry Voices were raised, discipline was handed down, but in my family, I'm grateful to say, those moments of discipline were not designed to put me on notice and let me know that I might lose my status as a member of the family. No, what I was reminded in those moments of discipline was that I was a member of the family and that that was not going to change and that that I was not going to get out of it. We've had similar moments with our own kids. You've disobeyed, you've done wrong, you're going to be disciplined, you're going to feel some pain. But the reason I'm doing this is not because I'm thinking about tossing you out. It's because I want to reinforce that you are mine and that I will love you fiercely forever because you're my child. Now, I know not everybody in this room grew up in a healthy home. I understand that. But think about this with me. When God confronts his people, is it as a boss putting an employee on notice when their performance is below par? 
Or is it as a loving father, a father who will never give up, never stop loving, never stop caring, a father whose hatred of disobedience is actually tied to his loyal love for his children? In 1 Samuel 12, God is going to have a fatherly discipline session of the children of Israel. And there's going to be some pain. There's going to be a little bit of crying and tears. But the net result is not going to be that Israel goes on a performance plan. The net result is that the covenant relationship between God the Father and Israel, his firstborn son, is renewed and refreshed, and the people actually leave that experience reassured of his love. I I can't stress enough how important it is for us to import the way that God relates to Israel here into the way that we understand him relating to us in our own spiritual walk with the Lord. So this morning, what I'd like to do is to distill from this event three attributes of God and observe how those attributes play out across a a variety of circumstances. These attributes are really, quite frankly, simple to understand, but they are so, in real life, they are so easy to misapply and to miss when we're relating to God in in our everyday circumstances. So I want us to get these drilled into our minds. So consider with me, first of all, from verses 1 through 13, that God is faithful. God is faithful. Uh, You might recall from our study last week that chapter 11 ended where Samuel gathers all the people together at Gilgal and he renews the kingdom. Uh, it seems to me that what takes place here in chapter 12 is actually a summary of that renewal uh, ceremony. What's happening for us in chapter 12 is actually what happened when Samuel renewed the kingdom. Uh, And we could, uh, he he begins by underscoring the faithfulness of God. So we could divide these verses into three subsections. First, uh, Samuel sort of envisions a courtroom scene where he's the one in the defendant's chair and the jury is the people and God is, is a, a witness and he says, listen, have I defrauded you in any way? And they have to vindicate him. They have to affirm his lifelong integrity in verses one through six. And then he invites them to think about the ways that God has cared for his people throughout history in verses seven through 11. And then he highlights how even in recent days, God worked through their sinful and rebellious request for a king in verses 12 through 13. So these three sections, and each one of them highlights his faithfulness in a different way. So think with me how this this happens. First of all, uh, observe with me that God is faithful in the way that he provides leaders for his people. God is faithful in the way that he provides leaders for his people. Samuel is almost cross-examining the Israelites in verses 1 through 3. He says, whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Whose uh, bribe have I taken to blind my eyes with it? Do these questions remind you of something that Samuel has said earlier in the book? Do you remember how he described the way that a king is going to operate in in the land of Israel? What's he going to do? What was the word that he repeated over and over again? take, right? He's going to take your daughter. He's going to take your son. He's going to take your servants. He's going to take the best of your crops. He's going to take. And Samuel asked the people, well, what have I taken from you? And people think back over the decades of Samuel's long life from the time he served in the tabernacle as a young boy to this covenant renewal ceremony at the end of his life. And they have to say, you haven't taken anything. You've been a man of integrity. 
with God as witness. Now, there's a lot we can take from this. First off, uh, just as an aside, notice how the people evaluate Samuel's leadership when he comes to the end of his life. This is instructive for us, isn't it? How do they evaluate his leadership at the end of his life? Is it his gifts? Is it his charismatic personality? Is it his fundraising capability, his skill at gathering a crowd? No. How is he evaluated? He's evaluated by his character. He's evaluated by his integrity. How foolishly we measure our leaders in the short term. Have you found yourself doing this sort of thing? Caring more about someone's gifts than we care about their character? We want someone who's attractive. We want someone who is magnetic. But the day will come when none of us is attractive any longer. The day will come when, just like Samuel, we are old and gray. And we are about to leave this earth. What difference will it make at that time whether we had a photogenic smile or a following on Twitter or TikTok or Facebook or whatever. No one's going to care about that, right? What are people going to care about at the end of our lives? Was he faithful to his wife? Was he kind to his children? Did he, uh, how did he handle his finances? How did he treat the least of these? Was he a man of lifelong integrity? And what I want to say is that whenever we enjoy the leadership, the example of individuals who exhibit that lifelong integrity, we are being invited to enjoy the faithfulness of God as he gifts us with those people. Don't worry about the guy who's rich or famous or attractive. I love that God allows me in our church to to have my children rub shoulders and interact with people who have lived lifelong uh, life of integrity and Christian character. That is wonderful to me. And, you know, as far as your attractiveness, I'm sure, you know, you're you guys are fine there too. I'm not saying anything about that. But what a gift. This is a gift of the faithfulness of God. And if you're worried that we might not have the right leaders in our church to accomplish what God wants us to do, don't worry. God is faithful. Just ask God. Rest in his faithfulness. Do you remember that story in the book of Genesis? Uh, Abraham. Uh, the kings of the east descend upon Canaan and they plunder these cities and they take Lot and his family. This is Abraham's nephew. And they take Lot's family and they carry him away. I'm sure they're going to sell him as a slave or something like that. And so they're going back to their land. And what does Abraham do? He takes 318 servants and he pursues these kings and he engages them in battle and he wins back everything and all the plunder that they had taken from these cities including Lot and his family and Abraham wins them back and restores the cities folks this is what God has done for our church this is exactly what God is doing in the church Satan has swept in he's captured the souls of thousands who do not really belong to him and it's like he's running desperately away with the spoils of his evil war but then Christ came and just like Abraham he chased down the devil and he destroyed him at the cross and he takes captivity captive and he delivers the captives and gifts them back to the church so that when Satan is plundered the church is is just enriched by the spoils of Christ's war. It's his victory. And each one of these people, including you and me, God is providing to his church to ensure that we have everything we need to obey him as a people. God is fierce 
and faithful on our behalf. He's faithful to us. He provides leaders in just the way that he desires. May he multiply among us those who live a lifetime of integrity. I'm so grateful to be a part of a church where God is doing this. God's faithfulness is seen in the way he provides leaders. But notice that God's faithfulness is also seen in the way he guides us through difficulty. Uh, Look at verse 7. Samuel says, Stand still, that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. And, And then he recounts for them some of the ways that God had been faithful to them when they were in desperate need of deliverance. They were slaves in Egypt, and they were oppressed by the uh, Egyptian king, and they cry out to the Lord, and God sends Moses and Aaron, and, and they're delivered from the difficulty because of God's covenant faithfulness to them. Later, they're being oppressed and even enslaved by this man Sisera, the commander of the armies of the city of Hazor, and they cry out to the Lord again, and he saves them from the hand, the hand of the enemy yet again, and Samuel reminds them how the Lord had provided these faithful deliverers, these judges, Jephthah and Barak and, and, and Gideon, uh, and even Samuel himself, these charismatic deliverers who delivered them over and over again. See, the people of God needed to be reminded of the faithfulness of God in the impossible situations they faced every day. They needed to, be, to, to remember how he had intervened on their behalf. They needed an illustration of his loyal love for them. I wonder how many of us need a little bit of a history lesson every once in a while. Like, when was the last time you took yourself to a history class? The history of what God has done in your life and in, in the life of God's people. We read our Bibles and we think, man, Samson, he sure was undisciplined. Kids, don't be like Samson because you will die early, you know? Or we say, hey, look at Jonah. He ran away from God. Don't do that, kids. Don't run away from God. You might get swallowed by a whale. I mean, I'm joking a little bit, but this is the kind of thing we do. We find these moral lessons, and on and on it goes, as if the sum total of what we take away from the Bible is a catalog of morality tales that scare little children into eating their vegetables and sitting still in Sunday school. But listen, that is not what this book is. We are missing the point. The history we have recorded for us isn't given to us so that we might improve our behavior. It's given to us so that we might learn the mighty acts of God and know his faithfulness. So when was the last time you took yourself to history class? You're anxious about the future? Look at what God has done in the past. Count your blessings. Consider all the ways he's answered prayer in your life. God is faithful. He's faithful In the leaders he's provided, he's faithful in the way he takes us through difficulty. Notice in the third place, he's faithful in spite of the stubbornness of God's people. Look at verse 12. You said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us. You said to me, no. Israel had said no, once again. No, God, we don't want you. You've been faithful, sure. But now someone is riding around and he's gouging out people's eyes and we need somebody to take control of this situation. We don't want you to reign over us. We need a a king like all the nations. So don't be too harsh with Israel because you and I do the same thing. We're so much more prone to trust the faithfulness of God when life is good and the problems are small and the stakes are low. But when Nahash is riding around the countryside and he's about to gouge out your eye, that's when you really find out if you're trusting the faithfulness of God. 
But look at what God does. He's still faithful even when we're stubborn. He's not like the boss who says, one more strike and you're out of here. No, he's the father who says, you can be as stubborn as a mule, but I'm going to patiently discipline and guide you because you're my child. God's faithful even when we're stubborn. Now, all of that is almost like a preamble to the moment of decision that begins in verse 14. God's been faithful, but now things are going to get a little scary for God's people. So notice with me in the second place that not only is God faithful, but secondly, God is fearsome. God is fearsome. Uh, Samuel says, if you will fear the Lord your God and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord, excuse me, will be against you and your king. So Israel is faced with a choice, and there are really only two options. One's good, the other one is bad. Uh, you trust and obey and, 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 and follow me, you fear the Lord, and everything will go well, or you disobey and you rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and everything will go poorly because the Lord is going to be against you. And then immediately, without even waiting for Israel to respond, uh, Samuel tells them, you're about to see just how fearsome God can be. So here it is, it's harvest time, it's the wheat harvest. Uh, this is like uh, mineral wells in August, like, but even more so. <laughs> you're not expecting a thunderstorm. I mean, around here you might get a squall here and there in August, but in Israel during wheat harvest, it just doesn't rain. I mean, it's like a snowstorm on the 4th of July. They almost never, ever get rain during wheat harvest. But all of a sudden, on Samuel's word, the sky is bruised black and, and blue and green with these angry clouds and the lightning stretches out the thunder assaults their eardrums the rain begins to pelt them like icy daggers in a moment the the dry brown clay and the the sandal worn weeds are immersed in deepening mud their clothes cling to them they race for cover they shout to their children but their cries are no match for the deafening sound of the thunder one report follows another, each louder than the one before, and just at the moment, it seemed as though the sky is going to fall, it was over. The valve shuts, the thunder ceases, the people of Israel are left whimpering in the mud before the fearsome God. And all the people said to Samuel, pray for your, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we might not die for we have added all our sin, to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. Did you catch what they said? Pray to the Lord, your God. They're not even willing to say, pray to the Lord, our God, at this point. They're so terrified of the great power of God. You say, well, you know, I don't think we should be afraid of God. Really? <laughs> what about Proverbs 1.7? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Or Proverbs twenty three seventeen. Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Or Isaiah eight thirteen. The Lord of hosts, Him shall you regard as holy. Let Him be your fear. Let Him be your dread. You say, yeah, that's uh, that's the Old Testament. Okay, 
You know, God, the God of the Old Testament is still the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But if you want New Testament, I can give you New Testament. How about the words of Jesus' own mother? She said, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Or Jesus himself, do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. When the Holy Spirit rushed through the temple at the beginning of the very first church in Jerusalem, Luke tells us in the book of Acts that fear came upon every soul through the work of the Spirit of God. When Paul wrote of his own ministry to the Corinthian church, he said, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. The writer to the Hebrews commanded all of us to live in the fear of the Lord. He says, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and yes, fear. Fear the Lord. He commands the uncontrollable elements. He bends the will of the wind and the sea and the thunder and the rain. He raises kings. He brings them low. He makes alive and he destroys his enemies. And if you think that this fearsome God is unmoved, unconcerned by the disobedience and the rebellion of the people who carry his name with them into the world, then you are not paying attention to your Bibles. God cares very much the way that his people live. Every once in a while, I have to remind my children that I am the dad, and they are not. I mean, aren't I such a scary person? (laughs) So I have to work a little harder, maybe, than others. But that's my responsibility as a loving father. It's not a, a very pleasant, it's not a very calming experience for them. But how much more so when our Heavenly Father is the God who can cause it to rain during the wheat harvest? It seems to me that we might need such a reminder ourselves. We're we're so comfortable. We're so unimpressed in the church. We come to church. I don't like that kind of bottled water. Why isn't it spring water? When is the sermon going to be over? We yawn our way through worship. We check our phones. We look at our watch. We scroll through Instagram. Why are we singing this song again? We leave. We go back to our lives of greed and bickering. Anxious, untrusting manipulation. Our words are like poison. Our priorities are present pleasure and worldly wealth. We don't have the fear of the Lord. How many of you in the last week have thought, have really thought about heaven or hell? How about the last month? How about the last six months? This is part of what it means to come to God in childlike faith. We grow up And we forget how terrifying it is to try and fall asleep in the middle of a thunderstorm. You remember that as a little child? You're trying to fall asleep. Your dad says, go back to bed. If you come out again, you're going to get a spanking. And you're laying there in your bed, and the thunder is booming. And you're like, how can I fall asleep right now? I am terrified. Kids recognize the power around them. Adults build houses in order to try to forget that power. Children who believe often do so because they recognize the terrible consequences of displeasing the Lord. We grow up and we forget. We're so busy listening to positive hits on the radio and podcasts that tell us how to use the Bible to make us feel better about ourselves that we forget to fear the Lord. Well, look, the the children of Israel, they forgot too, but a thunderclap brought them to their senses. They fall on their faces in response. Pray to I am that we may not die. So this moment of discipline, this moment of covenant renewal was a moment that they saw that, the, that, that God is faithful and that God is fearsome. 
But there's a third attribute of God that we see, see distilled in this chapter. Uh, again, very simple on the face of it, but critically important and very easy to misunderstand and misapply in our everyday lives. So notice with me in the third place from verses 20 through 25 that God is forgiving. God is forgiving. He's faithful. He's fearsome. He is forgiving. One of the things that you might notice if you read through this chapter in its entirety and really think about the entire chapter all at once, uh, think about how it's essentially a public service of worship. Uh, In fact, if you went out and you started a church today and you modeled the worship service after this chapter, you would be doing a lot better than many churches are today. I mean, this is a public service of worship. Uh, Samuel starts off, he focuses on the work of God, the ways he's revealed himself. Then he invites the congregation to respond by confessing their sin and seeking God's favor. And then he reminds them of God's loyal love and he reassures them that they're being faithfully represented before God's throne. This is a public service of worship. Uh, and, And the takeaway from verses 20 through 25 is that in spite of God's greatness, in spite of his holy, fearsome justice, his people are going to enjoy his forgiveness. And that forgiveness, the forgiveness of a faithful, fearsome God, actually bleeds out into a number of practical ways. So think, think about this forgiveness with me. Notice, first of all, how the forgiveness of the Lord actually frees us from terror. It frees us from terror. Uh, amazingly, after all this talk of the fear of the Lord, Samuel turns around and he tells the children of Israel in verse 20, what does he say? He says, fear the Lord. Then in verse 20, do not be afraid. Isn't that interesting? In fact, it's not the only place in Scripture that we're told to fear and then not to fear almost in a single breath. This happens in other places too. In Matthew chapter 10, uh, which we referenced earlier, Jesus says, fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. And then not three verses later, he tells his disciples, fear not. You are more valuable than many sparrows. So what's going on here? Are we supposed to fear the Lord or not? Are we supposed to be afraid or not? Well, uh, quite simply, we're we're talking about two different kinds of fear. Uh, One type of fear arises from the conviction that God is who he says he is and will do what he says he is going to do. The other type of fear is the fear that God might not be who he says he is and might do something he says he won't do. On the one hand, I must fear the Lord. He will brook no rivals, and he will never stray from his word. He never strays from his promises as terribly just as we might find him to be. On the other hand, I need to abandon, by faith, the notion that God acts with whim or caprice or carelessness. I need to abandon the idea that God would cast away the people to whom he has been committed uh, as, his lo- as the, their loving father. So what that means is that God's fearsomeness demands the fear of the Lord, this, this joyful fear, this hatred of evil, this dread of displeasing him. But on the other hand, God's forgiveness frees me from terror. It frees me from the fear of man. It frees me from the fear of what might happen to me because I know that I am in the hands of a fearsome God. So God's forgiveness frees us from terror. Notice as well that God's forgiveness focuses our worship. It focuses our worship. 
Samuel says, do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart and do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. His forgiveness focuses our worship. In other words, when we recognize that the same God who destroyed the armies of Pharaoh, the same God who caused a thunderstorm during wheat harvest is the very God who patiently forgives then we begin to understand that all of our other pursuits, all of our other idols, everything else we put our trust in is nothing but empty and we are led to worship God wholeheartedly. So listen to me, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, listen. Let me just make something really clear. You're trusting, you are trusting in someone or something. You're relying on something or someone to grant you the good life, to protect you from harm, to enable you to live life meaningfully and happily and peacefully. Maybe it's your girlfriend, maybe it's your job, maybe it's uh, some hobby that you enjoy, maybe it's your own brain or brawn, maybe it's a parent, maybe it's a child, maybe it's your financial situation or your physical health. It's probably a combination of some of those things. But you're trusting in something or someone. And by the way, for most of you, the things that you're relying on are not in and of themselves wicked. They're good things. They're gifts from God. But let me warn you, None of those things has the capacity to actually carry you through life. And if you're leaning on any of those things, you're going to fall. And if you're leaning on a person, you're going to harm them in the process because they, cannot, they can't shoulder the burden that you are putting on them. You're, act, you're asking them to be God, and they're not God. And, and at a very basic level, the problem with us is that we were created to worship God, but we take the things that God made as gifts and we worship them as if they were actually gods themselves. Whether we're talking about people or objects or ideas, the Bible calls this idolatry and it makes clear that there are spiritual beings behind this. They, they entice us to do this. And, and yet we're told here, like we're gonna be told a lot of times in 1 Samuel those things, the things, the persons, the ideas that we're tempted to rely on are actually empty. They cannot profit. They can't deliver. Why can't they deliver? Well, there are a lot of reasons, but one reason is because they cannot provide forgiveness. They cannot provide forgiveness. That gym membership might give you a slimmer stomach or a healthier heart, but it can't forgive you if you lose your temper on your four-year-old. Your spouse can forgive you for the ways you've sinned against him, but he can't do anything about the evil you've committed in other ways. And, and what about the evil that lurks in your heart that just stays there and resides? Well, I have to learn to forgive myself. Listen, forgiveness is not about psychological healing. It results in psychological healing, but it's not primarily about psychological healing. It's about relational responsibility and accountability. If you really understood the person that you're dealing with, you would be much more preoccupied with whether God forgives you than whether you forgive yourself. Only one person can really totally provide forgiveness, and that's God. The Israelites, they get a little glimpse of it here. We're privileged to know so much more about it now because we know that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world and he forgives us because he takes all of that pain and all the punishment that our sin deserves and he pours it out on himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Nobody else can do that. So that focuses my worship, God's forgiveness. That difference between the God who forgives 
and all the other fake gods that are empty and cannot profit. That's something I need to remember every day. I've sinned and I must be forgiven. And there's only one person who can do that. God's forgiveness frees us from terror. It focuses our worship. Notice as well, God's forgiveness exalts his name. Uh, Look at verse 22. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake. In other words, our father is not like the fathers that we see in the world. He's not like us, men. Uh, The fathers that we see in the world, and and so often we, if, if you're a dad like me, our identity as a father is wrapped up in whether our kids do things that embarrass us or not, right? You're out in public and you're thinking, I'm a good dad if the kids are behaving well, if they're getting good grades and getting awards at school or sports. We think I'm a bad dad if they don't, right? It's shameful, but it's true. That's the way we act. But God's not like that. His identity as a father is not wrapped up in whether or not his people fail. His identity as a father is wrapped up in his loyal love towards his people, his forgiveness towards sinning people. Like this is what makes him wonderful and great and praiseworthy, that even though we don't deserve his forgiveness, he gives it anyway for his great name's sake. That's what his identity is wrapped up in. And it's so wonderful that even the angels of heaven wish they could fully understand. Verse 23 reminds us that God's forgiveness is ensured by the prayers of a mediator. Uh, Samuel commits himself to praying for the people in the will of God. Uh, In this way, he foreshadows a future priest like the one that Skipper read about earlier in the service from the book of Hebrews, Jesus Christ. Jesus prays before the Father's throne unceasingly. He is always heard and his prayers are always heeded. He knows how to pray for us well because he's been tempted in all the ways that we are. And of course, as Samuel concludes his sermon at the end of the chapter, we see that God's forgiveness demands a response of repentance and faith. So Samuel gathers the people of Israel and he reminds them of the ways that God is faithful, that he's fearsome, that he's forgiving, And it is this, it's in this moment of discipline that God's reign over his people is renewed. They're not meant to come away from this experience wondering where they stand. They're meant to come away thinking, God is faithful to me. God is fearsome to me. God is forgiving to me. I belong to him. I am his child. He's my God. I'm his. That's renewal. That's a renewal of the reign of God. And I wonder this morning if you personally need a renewal of the kingdom. If you need to refresh your relationship with him. Maybe you've not been relying on God's faithfulness. You've seen him as that boss, that supervisor that that puts you on a performance improvement plan. And if you don't shape up, he's going to send you away. Maybe you haven't been walking in the fear of the Lord. And he sent a thunderstorm to kind of shake you and you need to renew the respect he deserves, the dread of displeasing your heavenly father. Maybe this morning you need to walk in God's forgiveness because the things that you've done you feel cannot be forgiven and you need to be reminded that apart from Jesus Christ there is no forgiveness but he offers it freely as a gift. It's been bought and paid for, folks. As we transition to a a celebration of the Lord's table, this, this is basically what we're doing. We are renewing the rule of God in our hearts. We're saying, God, you've been faithful to me. You sent your son, Jesus, to 
to break. He gave his body to be broken and his blood to be shed. God, you're fearful. You require a perfect sacrifice in order to forgive sin. And you are a forgiving God. And you've forgiven me, not because of anything that I've done, but because of what God has done. Because of what you have done. We're saying, Jesus, thank you for forgiving me and for praying for me even now. I want to renew my commitment to your rule in my heart. That's what we do when we're gathering around the table. And I would just ask that you take a moment now, uh, instead of thinking about, hey, what's the next thing? To just be still. Be still, just like Samuel says in this chapter more than once, and see who God is and how he relates to you. And I would ask you to just take some time to respond with me together. Uh, Let's bow before the Lord in prayer. Father, as we go to this time of response, I pray that we would be undistracted, undeterred, that you would cast away the work of the enemy in this room, and that each and every one of us would be able to see you for who you are and who you've revealed yourself to be, the faithful God, the fearsome God, the forgiving God. I pray that each one of us would be renewed in our commitment to your kingdom as you are preparing in your own heart to take the Lord's table and in a moment we're going to sing together uh, to, to prepare for this, I would just ask you to consider what is God asking you to do in response? Maybe he's asking you to take a specific step. And if that's the case, I would invite you to tell somebody about it. Pray with somebody about that. Uh, you're welcome, of course, to come and pray with me uh, here in the front or just with a neighbor. Um, but let's not ignore the the tugging, the conviction of the Holy Spirit as he convicts us of what he is teaching us in his word. Would you stand with me now and let's sing together as we respond to the word of God.